I'm gonna sit around all next week and do nothing. Yeah. What's the college football schedule for next week? That matters to me because I'm sitting around and doing nothing. Hold on. Let me stop this recording. This is Chapel Bell. I'm Nathan. And I'm Justin. And today we're here to review the 55 to nothing drubbing of the Vanderbilt Commodores by your number one in the land, Georgia Bulldogs. And we are going to talk about this from a qualitative and quantitative standpoint, as always. We're going to have a qualitative section where we go over the day that was and our personal experiences, as well as talk about a couple of quotes from the post-game news pressers. Then we will be going through our quantitative segment in which we will go through Mm -hmm. numbers, stats, the advanced box scores, and some notes that I actually managed to take during the game because I thought ahead... Mm. Because I thought, well, maybe we're not going to have a lot to talk about during this game. Makes sense. Before we get into that, we want to do a couple of plugs here. First, we want to talk about our Patreon. The Patreon is sort of what makes this podcast sustainable going forward for us, helps us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pay the bills for all of this. If you would like to join the Patreon, it gives access to our Discord, which is an amazing community of people we think that you'll like if you like this show. For as little as $1 a month, if you go to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve, you can join the Discord. For a couple more dollars, you can get your own private feed where you will get every episode early, as well as raw audio and extra segments that we don't put out on the actual public feed because they'll get us fired. Mm -hmm. For a little bit more money, you can get access to our show notes or even get a segment yourself. So we'd love for you to be out here. We think that the Discord is one of the best parts of this podcast, and we're so happy to have a lot of our patrons here with us right now live as we record. Now, the second thing we want to talk about, and this is an even more pressing announcement, is our next episode will be our Ask CBC episode. Because we have a bye week coming up, we will not have a preview or review episode. We will have just an Ask CBC where we talk about anything that you want us to talk about. There are no questions that are off limits within the confines of the fact that we can't get fired or divorced because of this episode. (laughs) But you know what? That's what Patreon's for. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say those are two pretty wide navigational buoys. There's a lot in between Mm -hmm. those two. If I don't get fired or divorced after this episode comes out. That's a win. Yeah, I'm, that's a win for me. But what that means for you is there's like 90% of the questions you could think to come up with. Fair game. So if you would like to ask us a question, if you were hearing this right now and you have a question about either UJ's current season or one of the stats that we have or our experiences with UJ football or some other weird niche nerd stuff that you think that we'll be interested in. We would love to hear them for you. So you can DM us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Chapel Bell Curve. The easiest way to do it is probably just to tag hashtag AskCBC and tag our Chapel Bell Curve account on Twitter. You can also send us an email at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. Or you can respond to any of the mini tweets that I'm going to be spamming between now and whenever we do record. So I think that that about does it for podcast business. Let's get into this and talk about the day that was with our qualitative segment. Sound good, Justin? That sounds lovely. All right. So before we get into our personal experiences, I thought that there were a couple of quotes from the postgame news conferences that were interesting. I didn't pull the quote for this, Mm -hmm. but I did think it was pretty clear. And they actually just said it that both Kirby and Stetson were watching the Tennessee Alabama game. And I thought it was really, I thought it was really funny. They asked Stetson like, oh, you were watching it. And he was like, oh, I was in the training room and they just had it on. And it's like, okay, sure. Stetson. (laughs) Let's let's just be honest. (laughs) I think that probably both Stetson and Kirby on Truth Serum would tell you that Alabama losing that game doesn't do anything for us. And Tennessee losing helps us marginally. It doesn't really matter. You still just need to beat Tennessee and you're fine. But 
obviously I think that's why they were interested. Also, it was just a very high level game between two teams that were probably still going to play this year. And so, but I just thought it was interesting. That mm-hmm. They both admitted that they watched it because Kirby is the kind of guy who is like very careful to not ever focus on anything but the week ahead of them, which leads me to my first post game quote, which was from Kirby. And I think this is just some like, and and I'm and I'm happy for any reaction that you have to this, Justin. I think this is like mm-hmm. top tier, high quality, <laughs> motivational speaker, coach speak bullshit. It is so just like, mm. and I don't even know if it's act- <laughs> I don't even know if it's actually BS. I think there might be a grain of truth to it, but it it is just like the most professional, cut to the bone, well crafted coach speak I've ever seen. So when he was asked about thinking about the Florida game, the Tennessee game, especially after this week. Kirby said, I'm looking solely at one thing. It's not Florida or anyone else. It's us. Because I'm going to dig, chew, claw to get every player on our roster better. Because one of those guys is going to be counted on to make a play in a tough game. I just want to say that this is good coach speak. I think on the one hand, it is kind of BS because I think, of course, they're getting ready for Florida. And if they Mm -hmm. are not doing some kind of practice segment on the speed of Tennessee's offense, then I'll eat my hat. <laughs> and they really should be fired if they're not, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they are. So I think on the one hand, that's BS. But I do think that to me, that was kind of a revealing quote and something I just wanted to bring up and talk about because I think it kind of reveals the mindset that Kirby has of just maximally looking for every single edge advantage, even if it's a fingernails with mm-hmm. trying to get every freshman prepped just because they might have to make a block on a punt return at some point in the third quarter, stuff like that. I don't know if you had any response to that quote. I mean, it feels very Kirby to me. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's always not getting too far ahead of ourselves because, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories I've been reading today following the Alabama game and a lot of people are talking about just how this team, like Bama is sloppy and Bama has gotten like sort of a chip on their shoulder. They've gotten big heads. They feel like it doesn't matter like, sort of how they prepare and how they practice, et cetera, et cetera. This is all pure speculation. But this language, this quote specifically feels a lot like the kind of thing you hear from somebody when they are conditioning you as a player, as an athlete to not get ahead of yourself. This is textbook, get your act together, Mm -hmm. focus on what's in front of you, stay in the now, Mm -hmm. don't act a fool, (laughs) stay with it kind of thing. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but that is actually a really good point. You know, I've always heard that Nick Saban's press conferences are as much for his players as they are for the media and the fans. And I Mm -hmm. think from that viewpoint, that is, you're right, there's a layer, there's an extra layer to that quote, which is that it's almost implicitly talking about how, to me, about now that I think of it in that context, that you have to just think about getting through the next practice, because if we get too focused on Tennessee, we'll screw it all up. Like if we want to beat Tennessee, if we want to beat Florida, if we want to beat Mississippi State, we have to do things in order. So yeah, I think you're right. That is, that that is not a dimension I thought of. So we have two more quotes about two, I think, pretty feel-good stories. There were two players yeah. in this game that scored their first offensive touchdown in a long while or ever. First was Eric Gilbert. Marcus Rosemey Jack Saint on Eric Gilbert on that touchdown. He had a really sweet code, I think. He said, since he got here, that is Gilbert, he's been having a couple of adverse moments, those up and downs. So to see him be in the end zone, finally, I'm speechless. You feel me? He's put in a lot of work. <laughs> I've been seeing him put in a lot of work. He's been through a lot. So to see him do that finally and live out the dream, it's a blessing. When he scored, everybody was up for him. The whole offense, defense, we were all excited for him. I don't have any comment on this. I just think it's sweet. That's all. Yeah. It's uh, bros love and bros. We love yeah. bros love and bros. It's it's a romance. Absolutely. And, and I think regardless of what Eric Gilbert brings to this team or what his ultimate NFL future is, you have to be happy that this is a guy who clearly has had a hard time in his life. 
Now, we don't know exactly what mm-hmm. that time is, but it's been a hard time, right? And I am just happy that he's having some things go right for him. And then you you put another, yeah. I think, very sweet quote as well. Yeah, yeah. The other uh, sort of feel-good moment, I think, of the game was, you know, Dominic Blaylock over the last several years has had a tough, tough time. He's had several injuries that have taken him out. And so we've sort of had the question mark hanging over the wide receiver court for some years due to, you know, various injuries and things like that. And so Blaylock, Dominic Blaylock for the first time in 1,050 days since 2019, had his first touchdown during this game, which was super exciting. And he said, in response to that, I couldn't have done it without my teammates. They did all they could. Once I hit the end zone, it was a loss for words. It was just a great feeling, Blaylock said. Sets him through a great ball. You couldn't have had like a better ball come to you in a perfect spot. So he put a great ball right there and I tried to take it in. And so I I guess that kind of loops back around to the Kirby. I appreciate it when everybody is, you know, reflecting on the game and they're sort of living in the moment they're taking it all in and they're appreciating it for what it is and it seems like you know this is a cultural thing of of this team is that they have a culture of gratitude like i really appreciate that gilbert has players on his team that are rooting for him i mean i think it says something about this team but it also says something about gilbert that despite being you know in an adverse situation and having to go through it there are still people there that love him and appreciate him and want to see him win and I think that's super important. And the same thing with Blaylock. Like, I, I appreciate that he stuck with it and he stayed with the team and made it work for him mm-hmm. until it worked for him. And so that's that's a good thing. Those are the, the kind of things you want to see from a team that will be sustainable. It is, you know, a longevity thing. Like, they're going to be around for quite some time if they keep treating themselves and each other in this way. I think you're right. You know, every team likes to talk about how, like, together they are and how much brotherhood they have. And I guess my ultimate read on when things like this come up is that I I think it's more helpful and probably accurate to not think of that as something to be cynical about that every team says that, but to actually think about how every team says that because that's what organized sports are about, right? Like when you get past Mm -hmm. the millions and millions of dollars, and we certainly shouldn't ignore the millions and millions of dollars at stake here, but when you get past the money and the sort of corporatization of college football, you're ultimately left with a bunch of teenagers who work really hard at something and care about each other. And mm-hmm. it is not automatic that that happens on every team. And I think you're right. I think it's cool to see that this is a team that likes each other. Yeah. <laughs> and after seeing actual fights happen at Houston this year between players, you know, I guess you can't take that for granted. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that sort of thing is not happening on the field. <laughs> oh, we can we just pause it. Can I just say that? If there's one thing I could change in my life, it would be that people would not point out the typos in my typings with such glee. What happened this time? Oh, I said liver recording is happening right now, and now (laughs) Ryan is making fun of me for it. You can't be good at everything, Nathan. It'd be really insufferable if you also spelled well. But that's the thing. It's like I do spell well. It's just like I understand code switching, and I don't edit my words when I type, because (laughs) that's not the point. (laughs) We die like men. It's funny to me, too, because... I get that a lot from my millennial friends, but my students think Mm. that when I text that I text like an old man because I sometimes put commas and periods in. Because to them, it's not about typos. It's about like maximally efficient communication. So like if you misspelled something and someone else read it, doesn't matter. I think that it's maximally efficient and effective communication when you use proper grammar. Personally. I'm not picking a side. I would say as a linguistic constructivist, I do think that Grammar is inherently evolutionary, but... That was a sexy sentence. All right, so now that we've gotten far afield, (laughs) as is tradition, (laughs) we just spent the last five minutes talking about something that had kind of nothing to do with what we were talking about. Let's talk about our experiences, Justin. Man, sometimes this man puts words together. 
Occasionally. They make me yeah. sweaty. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's for you. Thank you. I feel like that this is kind of always true of Homecoming, and, and I'm, I was happy to see uh-huh. that it happened again. Oftentimes, Homecoming weekends, not a lot to talk about with the game, but a lot to talk about with our experiences at the game because we just get to see so many people we don't usually see. And I feel like this was a day where both of us had a pretty good game day and got to have a, a pretty fulfilling personal time. So you want to talk about your experiences? Yeah. You know, it was a good day. Got to do lots of Athens things. It was really good. You know, we started Friday night meeting some folks downtown at Creature Comforts for the parade. That was pretty great. Got to hang out with each other. Got to hang out with some um, family, some listeners, etc. cetera. Uh, that was really fun. Had some beers. Had a good time. Um, eventually... I would say eventually went home, but really went home at a fairly reasonable time, I would say, so I could sleep mm-hmm. because I'm still trying to catch up on sleep after the last several weeks. My voice is gravelly, not because uh, I'm doing any sort of like Vigo Mortensen impression or anything like that. It's because uh, the seasons are changing and every year the seasons change, my voice sounds like this and I get a little froggy. But Saturday morning, I woke up after doing getting some sleep in and uh, went down to dog walk. You know, parked downtown, went down to dog walk, got to see that, you know, met up with the nieces. That was really great. Uh, hung out on the lawn across from Grady um, and mixed some witches potions with them and whatnot in the dirt. It was very exciting for them to say, come be witches with us, Justin. And I said, absolutely freaking lutely. Um, so we've mixed some potions. We mixed some poisons. Uh, we put them after rhyming some spells together, put them in their dad's pants. It was great. Um, very fun time. Walked back up to downtown, met up some other folks, and watched some of the most of the game at All Good um, for the viewing party. So that was really good. Um, got to see other people kind of in transit on the way as well. I got to see the nabs. That was neat. Ran into Joel. Got to hang out with Ben. It was good. Got to hang out with Becca. That was great. All these different people coming through. And one of my favorite things about Athens during a football game is whether you go out to eat or like you go to Target or you go sit at a bar. It's the, like the most surprisingly calm and quiet time of of the year in Athens, you know, um, unless it's like a really, really big game. But most of the time, if you go do something, you're not going to see many other people because everybody is busy watching the game or they're out of town or they're hiding in their homes. And so for for three to four hours, you're you're sort of you have like a personal shopping experience wherever you end up going. And that's kind of how all good felt for a little while until people started leaving the game. So that was pretty nice. But, um, you know, after some folks left, went over to Amici and watched the remainder of the game, but really went over to Amici to eat some chicken wings and watch the remainder of the Alabama and Tennessee game, which was very exciting. Was also like the longest game somehow. It lasted like a good hour and a half longer than our game. And it started the exact same time. Because it was on CBS. Because CBS takes a, a TV timeout every two plays. Took forever. I think every quarter was at least an hour long, which, yeah, it just took quite some time. And the half was a lot longer than it should have been as well. But overall, pretty great day. Pretty low-key, laid-back Athens day. I got to sleep at a reasonable time as well. Woke up today. Did community book fair things. Got to introduce people to our brand new bookmobile. Very excited about that. And now I'm here with you. So I would say the weekend, as far as weekends go, pretty above average. Tell me about yours. Yeah, I sort of had a similar. Well, I, I didn't have the calm game day experience that you had. I did get to see a lot of people. <laughs> I got to saw I, I'm going to miss some people. So I'm sorry. I saw the nabs. I saw Joel. I saw a bunch of old, not old, but Sue's phones that I graduated with. 
Uh, we just, just, just a bunch of old crusties. Yeah, caught up, caught up a lot <laughs> with the various alumni. Jashley, who was on the on this uh, Discord right now, I saw. Let's see, just a lot of Sousaphone alumni people. I saw Christina Swoop, who is like my my old school boo from back in college. Oh, Smitty, our, our boy Justin, the other Justin, who yes. is our stepson. Saw him. I met his girlfriend, who is a Florida fan, and was in Florida's band. Who was being very game, showing up to the alumni band practice at like eight a.m. wearing a Georgia jersey, which I respect for her for. And apparently, they've arranged that he is going to go to Florida's alumni band day and wear like a Tebow Broncos jersey. So you know what, Justin? Shout out! I, <laughs> that's a nice lady you got there. I'm just I'm, I approve. I like her. She's very sweet. Let's see. I saw an unnamed listener. There's a guy who walked up who I really recognize. He walked up and he's like, I'm a former red coat. I just want to say I listen to your I listen to your podcast all the time. It's one of my four must listens. And I was like very touched by that. But then he didn't say his name. And I should have known who it was because I definitely recognize him. I, I'm pretty sure I taught Red Coats while he was in it. So thank you, whoever mm-hmm. you are. Please tweet at us and tell us your name. And I'm sorry. Uh it was sort of an emotional weekend because Saturday was the one year anniversary of Cassie Moat's death. Cassie Moat, who was one, was the yep. color guard coordinator for the Redcoats last year, and John, who is the one of the percussion instructors, was there, of course, with his kids, and they did the first annual Cassie Moat scholarship to a couple of the color guard girls, and that was really, uh, I, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of a lot of mixed feelings. Got to hang out with John and his oldest daughter Ava for a minute, and that was really cool. Um, also, the Ask You scholarship, one of the there's a former sousaphone who passed away unexpectedly, and they have started a scholarship just for sousaphones for one of the sousaphones. And uh, my, one of the section leaders, Katya, got it, and that was a really emotional thing as well. Let's see. In more uplifting news, Joel, my boy Joel, who I don't think he's on this recording right now, but he is on this Discord. He spent the weekend this weekend and continues to be the most one of the most popular guests that we have for our cats just it was a really fun time hanging out with him just so kind oh i got to see the scoop and score that bama had in the bama tennessee game in the control room like the tv control room and that was pretty cool to have that moment in time in that weird super air-conditioned hidden control room which i'm still not going to tell anyone where it is because it's obviously intended to be hidden i had a really good time like we said on friday when we went downtown to creature comforts for the parade I drove Yara over there because they don't have a car. Uh, so it was nice catching up with them. And I also had a good time trolling the sousaphones who had to actually march in the parade. Let's see. Mm-hmm. I got 20,000 steps for the second week in a row, which was I, good, I guess, health wise. But also like my body, my body is old. Um, <laughs> oh, so the only sort of not notable thing I, I I was on the field a lot because we were just like prepping for stuff. Got some really good pictures mm-hmm. during like sort of the golden hour that I thought were very sweet with some like sun ray occ- occlusion going on. But then I felt bad. Well, not bad. It was just people doing their jobs. But we set up for halftime and Van, you know, like when you set up, we were on the our front sidelines as we were playing towards the students for homecoming was on the Vandy sideline. And so when we set up, we have to be very careful not to sort of interfere with any of the UGA stuff or any of the football equipment. But on the UGA side, it's fine because UGA has like a lot, like the home sideline is really wide and there's like a lot of room, but there's a lot less room on the visitor sideline, which, you know, because it's the visitor sideline. 
but they had set up a giant like Gatorade hydration station like right on the 50 where we normally <laughs> put the drum major podium. So we had to have the drum major mm-hmm. podium five yards off, which is fun, which was fine. But this this Vandy football worker, God bless her, she spent the entire pregame all the way through the Redcoats just like blasting at her from like about 10 feet away, just spent the whole time making Gatorade. And it was just like, <laughs> just making gallons and gallons of Gatorade. And I was just Going like, in. I was like, man, this is your job. And I respect, like, I, I don't, I don't think she was like deliberately ignoring us or anything, but she was very much like, I'm just doing my job. This is what I got to do. We got to have 50 <laughs> gallons of Gatorade after halftime. So this is what I'm going to do. And I, and I was just like, man, there's, there's a commitment. And I, and I tried to help her out because at one point she was filling the, and it's not funny. It's a little funny. She's filling up these big like Gatorade coolers that they have. And at one point she was sort of like trapped in by the way we had set up like the front ensemble. And so she's putting water in this cooler. And I noticed her like pointing at one of the sideline workers. She's like, hey, hey, because she's filled up all of the buckets. And now the water is just like overflowing down onto (laughs) the sideline. So I had to run over there and turn the they have like a spigot on the sideline for me to use. So, yeah, it was a good time. It was let's see. It was just a really a really nice day. You know, it was very low pressure, mm-hmm. but I felt like it wasn't boring yeah. at any time. Oh, I saw Hot Rod on the sideline before halftime, uh, and he, we fist bumped. You said some weird things about his knuckles earlier. Yeah, he has, he has a big old man knuckly hand. Like, his fist <laughs> is, like, the same size as my fist, and we are not the same size human. You know? And I was just like, dang, okay. Uh, and <laughs> let's see. Oh, I also saw my boy Julian Rochester. He gave me a hug. Recognized me. Oh, he is nice. getting, he's going to play in the XFL, and I think the draft Ooh. is in December. The first draft, so he's Sounds extreme. Getting, getting prepped for that. Yeah, I'm very excited to support whatever team he goes to. Let's see. I also, oh, yeah, this is a weird, not weird. It was cool, but at the dog walk, we usually let like little kids stand between the red coat members and kind of like stick their hands out and like get high fives and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was this this family and they all had like Xavier Sori's the middle linebacker number 18 jersey on. And I was like, oh, that's cool in my mind. And I was like, oh. They must, that must be his family or whatever. And they didn't have the buttons on because a lot of time the football parents have like a button that has like the, their player or whatever, or they have like specific mm-hmm. like other gear. But I was like, oh, that's cool. Like that's probably extended family or something. And then I went, I was like, hey, you guys can come in between the Sousas and like high five or whatever. If you're trying to talk to your, to your relative on the team. And they were like, yeah, cool. Well, we just like Xavier and Sorry. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Like that, <laughs> all six of you We're bought a Xavier Sori jersey, a uh, reserve line. Maybe they found each other afterwards, though. Maybe, yeah, it might have been a family. It was just weird because it wasn't like definitively a family, and I love that. I love that mm-hmm. energy. If it was someone who was not a family member, they just decided they were going to pick a UGA football player to support, and just like sort of were like, eighteen is a good number. Let's do it. Who's eighteen this year? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's my favorite number. Yeah, is eighteen really your favorite number? Yeah, I was born on the 18th, so it makes sense. Oh, mine is 88, because I was born on the 18th. I've always been 18. In 1988. In sports. Really? I was always 88. Cause that it's works. Like a, it's a lineman number two, so I guess nobody ever wanted to take it from me. <laughs> um, so before we get into our quantitative section, as I guess sort of a roll into our quantitative section, do you want to review these sort of storylines that we identified going into the Vanderbilt game? Oh, yeah. I'll read them out to you. You tell me what you think, okay? Okay. First one, does UGA actually give a shit about the cancel game in 2020? Because a section of Twitter does, and that was a long time ago. Okay, so I didn't think so, and I still don't think so. 
But I will point out that <laughs> when they put in Carson Beck, he was passing a lot. He was passing a whole bunch. We didn't really pull the foot off the gas when we and, and I don't uh-uh. have any inside I've never heard any scuttlebutt about any relationship between Kirby Smart and Clark Lee. I don't know that they've ever interacted. They 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 don't have really a I mean, I think Clark Lee was maybe on those James James Franklin staffs, and I know James Franklin didn't always get along with UGA, but I don't. I don't really know that they necessarily have any inner any relationship. But man, I did feel like once we got up at like forty two nothing or something, and they put Carson Beck in, I was like, okay, we're just going to grind this out. And then the next two series, he passed like eight times, which was fine. That's what yep. you should do. You're trying to get trying to build depth. But I I don't know. So mm-hmm. I still think no. But now I'm less convinced in how like certain I was that the answer is no. <laughs> well, no. I mean, one of the questions we asked last time was after this question or this storyline was is is Kirby going to treat this game the similar way that he did the Kent State game and. Treat it more like a scrimmage and try a lot of weird stuff i don't think that was the case for this game we did the stuff that worked and we just worked on repetition in a live game situation yeah and and i do think we i think you're right i don't think we treated as a scrimmage in the sense of like pulling out any stops i think we were like you said relatively conservative inside of what we've established that we can do i will say snap mm-hmm. count wise i just saw the pff snap counts came out over on 24 7 and i was kind of i was a little bit interested by a couple of things one was that uh, Carson Beck had the highest overall offensive grade at 89.7, which was mm. hilarious. But looking at the number of snaps on the O-line was really interesting to me because we had uh, at left tackle, Austin Blasky was only in for three snaps. Broderick Jones was in mm-hmm. Broderick Jones was in for 74 snaps. At left guard, Xavier Truss was in for 65 snaps. Then we had Devin Willick and Micah Morris. Right, Cedric Van Pran was in for 78 snaps at center. And then Warren Erickson was in for seven. Tate Ratliff was in for 69 snaps. Then Jared Wilson for nine. Dylan Fairchild for nice. three. And then at right tackle, we had Warren uh, Warren McClendon, 47. Amarius Mims, 35. Chandler, Chad Lindbergh, three. So to me, what that tells me is that, you know, we have probably four set starters on the O-line at this point, And we were working on getting cohesion. And that Amarius Mims, mm-hmm. the guy who I think they want to play, is really making a push at right tackle. So I think other than that, like we didn't get as far into the depth offensively as I thought we would. Now, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've had so many wide receiver injuries that we were playing all of our second stringers on the wide receivers anyway. But I don't know. I was just I was kind of fascinated by the snap counts. All right. What's our next what's mm-hmm. our next storyline? Next storyline. Can I please get a waffle? Healthy team. I'm sorry. I'll say it the way I'm supposed to say it. Can I please get a waffle? There we go. A waffle. So outside of one injury, it seemed like everyone came out of this healthy. Now, the big exception to that is Lad McConkey, who went down with what looked like a no contact injury, which mm-hmm. is not great. Not good. Yeah, not have not not good, Bob. That's knee stuff. Yeah, so the latest report going into the bye week is that Lad McConkey and Xavier Truss, who both came out of the Vanderbilt game, could have come back in. Smart said that McConkey could have gone back in and that Truss was fine following the game. So maybe it wasn't something serious, but I don't know, man. Anytime I see a non-contact injury, I'm a little bit worried. Yeah. That's usually not a good look. But I will say, you know, Stett seems to be doing better. He was really clicking, so maybe the shoulder stuff is a little bit better. But other than that, I felt like we got through relatively unscathed. Which is a great segue. Does Stetson Bennett play in the second half well he played all the way through the third quarter he sure did i think it's clear at this point that we weren't like exercising demons with vanderbilt but i do think that we were like we need to get some snaps to get this offense going again and the fact that we scored 55 points 
and we didn't leave like a whole bunch of points on the table is kind of telling. We didn't just pack it in in the fourth quarter, even when we took Stetson out. I, I think you're right. Like the idea that we were just trying to do what worked and just trying to get some game reps in. Next one. Can UGA's offense click in the first half? The answer is yes. Oh, yes, it did indeed. And finally, can we pad out these Havoc plays? No, interestingly. No, we can't. <laughs> Let's see. Havoc rate of in the 38th percentile at 9%. We had mm-hmm. four tackles for loss generated, two in the passing game, two in the rushing game. A sack, passive defense, no interceptions, no fumbles forced. We did recover an interception. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I wonder if it's just a one of the natures of having a young defense who's really learning and growing is that you have fewer havoc plays because everyone's just trying to get in the right spot. But yeah, I think that's part of it. I was expecting a lot more. I think that's that's interesting to think about too, and this can kind of segue us into our actual quantitative but something we were talking about off air just a moment ago was i was looking at the team stats the overall team stats for this game and kind of looking at all of our you know epa and the percentile ranks uh as compared to last year's games and everything looks pretty good um our offensive stats look pretty strong um in the 90th and up for the most part Mm -hmm. but then the defensive run stuff rate is at first percentile 14 percent of the the runs were stuffed uh vanderbilt's runs and I think that, you know, you could sort of start to speculate if you look at the havoc rate percentage as well as this defensive run stuff rate. I think it's interesting to think if this is intentional at all. You know, there are certain quarterbacks who we definitely want to put pressure on the whole time Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, run blitzes and actually run havoc plays behind their line of scrimmage. But I think that it's something it's sort of a pattern that we've seen over time where you and I both really enjoy seeing that havoc rate go higher but more often than not in the regular season it stays pretty low until we see a more i guess a more important game more consequential game and i wonder if vanderbilt had 47 percent of their 47 plays from scrimmage Mm -hmm. were rushes and only 14 percent of those were stuffed meaning we gave them anywhere between zero to two and a half yards every time they ran the ball and i wonder if that is you know sort of intentional in the sense that we're trying to let them run the ball because we want them to think it is working and they're establishing it we're giving them like just enough to continue running but also not enough to where it is considered a successful run meaning Mm -hmm. it would be 3.3 yards and so continues to run the clock, continues to allow them to think they're establishing it. It's sort of like it's like a bait and switch in a game of chess. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I think there's something to they clearly had a conservative game plan because I don't think they trusted mm-hmm. their O-line. And I think we were totally fine with them having that conservative play plan and, and game plan. And I think you're right that it is somewhat situational to have it plays. I mean, ultimately, A.J. Swan was 12 for 23 for 105 yards. And a sack, a 30.7 QBR, 4.38 yards per play, negative 0.37 uh, EPA per play, 29% success rate. So really at that point, when that's your opposing quarterback's stat line, it doesn't matter whether, whether or not you sack him multiple times or pick him off. Ringo had a couple of dropped interceptions. There were a couple of opportunities mm-hmm. for interceptions that we maybe didn't take advantage of. But like you said, ultimately, when a team, it's like if a team is doing something that's not working, you don't stop them. We didn't yeah. need to bring blitzes we didn't need to bring run blitzes because they just weren't having a lot happen anyway i would still think that you would like to have seen more finished plays to the ground but you know i mean we had a lot of pressures even if they didn't turn into sacks and so it's hard to really complain about that too much and that 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 is actually a good transition in i took some notes by quarter and i'm just going to go through some Mm -hmm. of them and so you give me i'll hit you with some stuff you hit me with anything you think you know in response any observations that you had sounds great kenny mcintosh is just 
Stetson Bennett's safe, safety blanket at this point on the day. He carried it nine times, 43 yards and a touchdown. Receiving, he had two catches on two targets for 20 yards and a, and a touchdown. I felt like every time that Stetson got into trouble, he was looking for Kenny McIntosh because he just mm-hmm. he is just an incredible all-around player. Uh, I thought, and I know this is weird, but Chris Smith was wearing long white sleeves and white socks. And I thought that was just like a <laughs> like high white socks. I thought it was a good look. We had lots of black socks on this defense, and, and Chris Smith really popped with the white socks. Uh, I think Tyke Smith is really coming along. He He's just a really physical player, especially at his side, at his size. He, you know, I, I think in the past he's maybe gotten burned a touch on some just sort of like read stuff, but he looked really good in this game. Uh, I didn't see any missed tackles from him either, which he had one against in the last game against Auburn. Uh, I don't know if this is a choice defensively, but I do feel like we're playing those tight end crossing routes, the tight end drag, the tight end in, just the the tight end stuff across the middle. We've been playing it kind of soft. And I mm-hmm. don't know if that is by design, but we have been allowing a lot of completions to tight ends, even back to the Missouri game across the middle. And so I thought that was... It's not something I'm necessarily worried about, but it is something that I, I'm not sure if that is a by design thing or a an actual you know, flaw in the defense's ability to cover. Uh, let's see. You can't run horizontally on this defense still. I think that's something that hasn't changed Mm-mm. since Jordan Davis. Um, like I said, I saw a very conservative offensive plan from Clark Lee. I think they know they had a, a bad O-line. Um there, the long touchdown that called got called back, which was annoying. Uh, there, there was a really cute moment where I think it was Cedric Van Pran and Stetson were still back at where Stetson had launched the ball from in the first quarter, mm-hmm. and they were running up to get to to do the because they were both on the point after team, and Stetson was like, "Come on, man, come on, come on!" And he started running, and Cedric Van Pran like started <laughs> running with him. It was like a really cute moment, and then it called back, which was like. A huge bummer. I don't know. You had a note on that one. <laughs> I thought that this was the moment where it looked clean from all the yeah. different angles. That was the weird thing. I think that it eventually was that his his ankle was down or something. It was something very technical, yeah, very specific. And I, I, I didn't catch it because you can't hear a whole lot. From all angles, I'm so glad that he did get up and run the way he did because... It looked good. <laughs> he did the right thing. <laughs> Let's see. Ryan Davis looked really good out there. It seems like in the absence of in Smile Munden's sort of nagging injury concern, Ryan Davis has really stepped up. He he looks like a really physical, fast linebacker. Chris Smith continues mm-hmm. to be sort of the glue guy on this defense. Gets in there, gets his hand into stuff. I will say the fir- one thing that that disturbed me, and we both sides of the formation defensively got hit, got got basically burnt on like double double moves i think it might have been double sluggo like a slant and go it was some kind of double move like a stutter and go but both sides had wide receivers with a step and then the ball was just poorly thrown into double coverage that's probably a touchdown against ut so those double move plays ut likes them it's just something to clean up uh lad mcconkey he had a pretty good punt return that ended with like the most short white guy hurdle i've ever seen like one of his own blockers (laughs) fell in front of him and he just did this little like hopscotch hop like six inches off the ground and i know mcconkey can jump (laughs) but it was just really funny it was like his it was like the 45 year old who can't jump anymore at the pickup basketball game who just sort of like Uh hop around and be cagey um just need to be effective yeah exactly (laughs) just had to clear the guy don't have to clear him by foot rosemary jack saint uh marcus rosemary jack saint is sort of developing into a reliable second option in the absence of A.D. Mitchell. 
Uh, he looked good. He 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 doesn't have breakaway yeah. speed, but he can jump. He's strong at the point of attack. What did, what was your note here? <laughs> I was just reminded me that uh, you know talking about Jack uh, Rosemary Jack Saint that there was an announcer that couldn't stop calling him Rosemary Saint Jack last week, <laughs> um, and it was driving me a little crazy. But I kind of like that name too. It's sort of like a like a like a Tank Bigsby situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rosemary Saint Jack is like his pirate alter ego. It's mm-hmm. like, Arg. Football didn't work out for me, mateys. <laughs> Time for the high seas. But I still got plenty of booty. I had a really funny moment where I typed out. I did these kind of sequentially in order. And I typed out, where is Brock Bowers? And then the next bullet point is, just like that, he picks the DB's pocket. That was right before. He had this little... <laughs> they hit him on this, like... it was. I don't even know what the route concept was. But it was just, like, something out of the slot where he had a quick in. And the ball was behind him almost straight to the DB, and he's like, no, sir, pardon me, bloop, and just, like, took it out of his hand. So sorry. Yeah, on the day, Brock Bowers, you know, not his most impressive day. Uh, he had four catches on five targets for 15 yards, uh, 3.75 four, yards per I think they just for catch, yeah. They did a pretty good job of containing Brock Bowers. Yeah, they, um, they have him bracketed quite a, quite a bit. They had to choose who they were going to cover, and it's hard to choose against this team when you have 20 consistent targets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Stetson Bennett had all day. Stetson Bennett could have set up a lemonade stand at some point. At some points during this <laughs> game, uh, he, you know, they got one sack on him where it was just kind of a cover. Uh, it was just a a bust in in the uh, blocking scheme. But I I thought that he looked really good. I thought the O line came to play. Uh, I thought on the second touchdown it was interesting. UJ continues to run a lot of interesting like pulling lineman stuff. There was like an inside mm-hmm. pulling guard that went through the A gap on the second touchdown play that I thought looked really interesting. Uh, in the second quarter, uh, I think we're starting to see some more hard play action out of this team. We haven't really hit anything out of it, but it's on tape now. Um, that I uh, lots of counter toss going on, lots of like contrary movement stuff built off of the counter toss. So we counter tossed a couple of times in the second mm-hmm. quarter, and then the third quarter we did we ran like a jet motion and then the counter toss fake, and then we threw it to the jet motion guy. And then we did the same thing, but just did like a hard play action off of it. That's a little bit of the like all this stuff built off of that counter blocking action is a lot of what Lincoln Riley does. And I don't necessarily think that we're going to just like play USC's playbook, but I think that stuff is in the playbook in a way that it hasn't been in the past in the past. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, we went for it on fourth and one. I really like the goal line tempo Fourth and one from the Tim. We go for it. We get it. We're on the one. And we just immediately line back up and run like basically the same play for a touchdown, which I thought was good. Uh, <laughs> we had a coverage bust on a bad wheel route, uh, a bad coverage on the wheel on a wheel route uh, in the second quarter. It went unpunished because the ball wasn't good, but that's something that Kirby's team, since they got burnt in, I'm going to say 2017 or 2016 by uh, Florida, that Kirby's teams have traditionally been pretty good on the wheel route. Um, and then we got into the sort of like, the Darnell Washington part of the day where some of my notes are just like, good God, Darwell, Dar- Dar- Darnell Washington. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, if we go down, so good. Darnell is a first down cheat code. Then the next, the next bullet point, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Darnell. Um, <laughs> let's see. I fist bump hot rod. I got that note in there. Uh, we got a fucking, mm-hmm. our, uh, we have a running back stable boys, boys and girls. It's, like five. It, it's five starting players running at running back. Yeah. And really, Really been interesting how Kendall Milton's sort of absence from this, the field has opened up some playing time for Robinson and for, uh, and for, oh, number 30. What's his name? Edwards. Yeah. 
Dejon uh, Edwards. Dejon Edwards and Robinson. I, I but think then Cash Jones and Nathan. Cash Jones had a touchdown. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I I think they look really good. Um, and then yeah, the. <laughs> The Dominic Blaylock touchdown was just such a lob shot. It was such a like golf shot of a throw or it mm-hmm. might not have been. A, was it his touchdown that was in the second quarter? He had a catch in the second quarter and I think it was a touchdown, but it was just like a like it, it looked like like a, a golfer who tries to hit the ball like straight up to get over like a, a hazard and onto the green. It just went. Vroop, vroop. But yeah, it was <laughs> really cool. Um hmm. There was a there was a point in the second quarter where the refing was kind of weird. Like there was a bad DPI on yeah. Ringo, um, but in the second quarter, a good thing that happened defensively. I, I continue to think Ryan Davis is just like developing to a really really good linebacker. He he yeah. he had a run blitz where he just like grabbed the center and threw him into the bat into the backfield where he looked really good. Um, you can't reverse or double reverse on this defense. It just doesn't work. At this point, this Kirby Smart's teams are not going to be fooled by the double reverse. Just if you don't have like Tyree Kill as your wide receiver, just don't don't do it. Um, I am interested in formationally how much cross formation blocking we're doing with tight ends from the sniffer position. There's a very common run play called split zone where a tight end comes across from the 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 strong side of the formation across and hits the guy on the backside, usually the unblocked man on the mm-hmm. backside. We'd run that either fake or real cross formation block a lot. And I, I'm really interested in how and how I think part of Todd Munkin being in his bag this year has to do with, we don't necessarily do a lot of pre formation shift stuff, but we are moving guys around at the snap all the time. Like the the mid play wrinkles that we run with jet motion and orbit motion and sniffer blocks and relocating like Darnell Washington lines up on one side runs like a sneak across the formation fake blocking and then runs like a wheel off of that or runs a go or a drag or whatever uh, it's it's really interesting and and I think that uh, one of the things that we might have done on Vander on that on on the day against Vanderbilt that is sort of an un an invisible advantage for us going forward is that we put a lot of interesting stuff on tape. Um, I thought overall, and this is something I said in, in the third quarter, like when we have this outside quick game going, that wide receiver screen game that we like so much, and we have the run going, mm-hmm. then the offense is really hard to stop. When we can run it up the A gap, but then also get it to the perimeter to players that have speed, then all of a sudden the defense is having to come downhill and they don't know which, which way to go. And then we can hit those pop shots over the top and those sideline passes. Um, again, this, this offense is not very explosive. I don't think that until we get A.D. Mitchell and Arian Smith back that they're, it's going to continue to be very explosive. Arian Smith only had one target on the day and no catches. So I think he might be not injured anymore, but he's clearly not worked back into the rotation, but this, this deep, this offense is so, so efficient. I mean, like 95th percentile of success rate, right? And then 57th percentile and explosive play rate. I actually wrote at one point, without playing the triple, is it possible to be so efficient that explosiveness doesn't matter? Right? Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see. I thought that the defense looked sound even when we started to bring in some second players. Uh, Branson Robinson, 
is just he's a special player, dude. I, I don't know that he is Nick Chubb. Like, I don't think he is. I don't think he's first round draft pick or whatever. I don't think I think you have to assume that someone's not Nick Chubb until they prove it. But like that dude has a little bit of that him in him. Like he'll hit you. Like he 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 is not <laughs> he is not afraid to get it, put the nose right in there. Yeah, he is he is as yeah, we said. Uh, you wrote all caps, thick you bodied. wrote us a note. Thick bodied, yeah. Rocked up. Also rocked up. Yeah. Uh, lots of post-snap contrary motion tends to be really interesting to me. We saw a little bit more under center. Um, we've run the ball against two bad defenses. I don't know if that means we can run the ball going forward, but we have proved that we can at least run the ball against a bad defense. That's the first step of proving you can run the ball against a good defense. <laughs> the first step to being really good at something is being really bad at something. Well, being just okay at something. And right? we're not even really bad at something. Yeah, we're, yeah. We, I mean, like, look, we actually, we, we pasted Auburn last week. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. And we pasted this team and we're going to paste them. We were going to paste this team regardless of what we did. I mean, we ran double the plays of then. We had double the time of possession. We were never losing this game. But I do think it's interesting that we ran the ball 36 times. See, on the day, we had 1.93 yard lines per carry, 3.42 highlight yards per carry. Like, we had 100% successful power runs. We only had 14% stuff runs and 28% stop runs for less than two yards. A full 53% of our runs on the day gained more than four yards. It wasn't necessarily at the Auburn level of just absolutely smashing ass on a team, but we continue to run <laughs> the ball on bad defenses. Mm-hmm. I think that is that is a a good sign. Eric Gilbert in the fourth quarter, that was great. Carson Beck, he looks good, man. He did. I mean, he was playing uh, the second team defense on the worst team in the SEC. So, you know, that there's a reason that the second the second team quarterback is almost is often so popular, but he looked good. Karras is working back into shape. Um, Eric, Eric sighting in fourth in the uh, fourth quarter. Why did you write all caps Brocked Bowers? Oh, uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to write Brocked Bowers. I meant to write Brocked Up because Brock Vandergriff came out and he's yeah. looking a lot bigger, obviously, because he's yeah. been working out with the team and he's been around for. A yeah, couple he years is now. Brocked Up and he's Brocked Up. I was I was thinking of a world in which Brock Bowers and Brock Vandergriff are on the field and we get brocked up and i just i look forward to that day when we can say confidently and truthfully we're brocked up yeah i mean look this was a good game in the sense that we didn't doesn't seem like we're gonna have a lot of lingering injuries going forward we're developing some deaths i think really one of the biggest stories of the game is that amarius mims is making a move you know if Mm -hmm. you look at the recruiting credit pedigree of the of our offensive line there is not a much there is not a player on this offensive line, or really on this team, that it has a higher pedigree than Amarius Mims. He was the guy coming out of high school, so I think it is a good sign when you have a when you have a prospect that is quote unquote the guy who starts to make a move. He was a, a consensus five star. He was the number three uh, offensive tackle in the nation, the number one offensive tackle in Georgia, and the number eight. Um, player nationally he was he was in the top 200 recruits all time per 24 7 right six seven three thirty just an absolute like beast of a man so seeing him come on after he tried to not tried to but after he was going to transfer seeing him come back into the fold and then start to make like a move on that left on that right tackle spot it's good it's good to see and it's nothing it's nothing against our current left tackle or our current right tackle rather it's just that 
you want your best, most pedigreed players to be or be players who are getting snaps because that shows that you evaluated well and you developed well. I don't know. I mean, do you have anything else about this game? I feel like it's honestly pretty impressive that we've talked about it for almost an hour. I was about to say, I'm I'm impressed that you were able to get all that in there. <laughs> yeah, I knew I knew coming in, I was like, I'm not going to be able to just like off the dome an hour of, of content on this. Like after before no. and after every Florida game, you could just be like, Nathan, Florida. And then I pass out. And then when I come back, you're like, oh, hey, we recorded for an hour and 30 minutes. Good job, bud. But I knew I knew I was going to have to do a little bit more work on this one. I Oh, I'd also like to point out your prediction was uh, UJ48, Vandy6. Mine was UJ42, Vandy0. Mm-hmm. And actually, we Pretty were good. both exactly 13 points off. So we tied. Hey, we both get away. You, uh, you have a note on here about the Tennessee-Bama game before we get out of here? Lord have mercy. I think we got to talk about it. Yeah, it was, yeah I think what so. What a wild time, huh? What a yeah. time to be alive. What, what was your impression of that game? I didn't get to watch any of it. This is what I'll say. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of start with last year with, I don't remember what who Georgia was playing um, the the night that Alabama and Texas A&M played. But I remember I took a nap in the first half, woke up at halftime, and I saw that it was going in a direction that it was unexpected. And so I rolled myself off the couch and I went downtown because I was like, I need to be near people. And this is this is why I love college football, because I love being a part of a crowd who is excited and we're all in it together. Like for a moment, you just sort of forget about all of the dumb shit that we have against each other and you're a part of something bigger for a little while. It can be as silly as a game with a bunch of teenagers running around, uh, you know, chasing an oblong ball. And that's okay because... I'm able to suspend my own disbelief for a little while to enjoy this moment. And that's exactly what that game was last year. You would have thought that it was Georgia beating Alabama when Alabama lost to Texas A&M. And it was exactly the same thing this time around when Tennessee beat Alabama. And it's just so exciting to see people genuinely excited about something. And then you leave before anything gets ugly. Like you just you go out on top. And that's exactly (laughs) what I did. (laughs) Like you go out while it's still good and everybody's still excited about it. I still feel really hopeful playing against this Tennessee team. I think that what we're going to learn is that Alabama has just spent too long at the top and now is playing sort of not even sloppily. Like it's sloppily, not because not for the sake of being sloppy, but they have become sloppy in some instances when they start playing from behind. And that's sort of what's happening. They're not used to playing from behind Mm -hmm. and it's weird. And so that's why we get all these instances of people talking about how Nick Saban, he has to create instances of strife for his team because it's like getting famous when you're a kid and like child stars, they walk around with a chip on their shoulder and they think they own the world because that's how people treat them. If I was treated like that all day, I would probably be an asshole. I think it's true for many people. Mm-hmm. If you're just given things all the time. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. how it works. And so. It makes sense that, for instance, this is the, the a game where Alabama had the most penalties in a single game in program history. That is true. That is This is the single most penalties they've had in a game in program history, and it happened during Nick Saban's time. Yeah. And I'm sure he's going to have a, a, like an aneurysm this week at practice because of it. This is also the most points a team has scored on Alabama since 1907. <laughs> like, I think that's nuts. Mm-hmm. Um this is also that was also uh, another thing I remember watching was that the it was the absolute ugliest game winning kick I've ever seen. Um, it was just sort of like he kicked it and he absolutely like knuckleballed it. Yeah, there was, there the was zero, zero spin on it. No spin. It was sideways. Like I saw it and I was like, there's no way because everybody was already yelling and screaming because it was it had it was where it needed to be position wise. 
but it was so low. And like, yeah. I don't know how he kicked. He must have like absolutely rocketed that thing. And then the Alabama kicker in true Alabama kicker fashion, like absolutely shanked it. I they they shot like they changed the angle to be right behind the kicker right before he he you know ran up for his uh for his kick and I was like there is no way like the angle was just like Mm-mm, this ain't gonna happen <laughs> like that is not where they need to be but it was just a weird game overall the defensive pass interference penalty when Hooker like that negated took away a took away an interception I don't know man mm-hmm. it was kind of a weak sauce pass interference call man Tennessee got really lucky with a lot of calls though I will say there was. Late in the game, there was a, a situation where the ball, like Hooker absolutely lost the ball and it was picked up by Bama and they took off. And unfortunately, the refs called it dead before they could take off. But it was absolutely a fumble and turnover. And that would have ended the game. The no targeting call on there was like a, a Bryce Young hit that I only saw after the fact. It should have been a targeting call and a late hit. It's not helpful to be like, oh, well, one team won because of the because of the penalties. It's just like. It's not good for football. It's not good for college football. It's not good for the SEC, Mm-mm. the way that refing changes the game. Yeah, it's not. And I don't know who it affected more. I'm sure both sides would tell you that it affected one or the other more. I know that there was this whole thing about how like the forward progress fumble where Alabama thought they had the fumble, but they called forward progress on it. It's not like Alabama wins or Tennessee wins because of it happening. I don't know that you can necessarily quantify that either way, but it's just it doesn't help the sport. To me, I feel the same no. way that about bad refing in college football that I do about bad umping in baseball, where it's like ultimately more than hurting or helping one team, it just hurts the sport. <laughs> and like when you have mm-hmm. arguably the biggest game of the year and penalties are part of the conversation and not penalties of like, oh, this team was really sloppy. Like you said, that was part of it. But just in general, penalties and refing in general are part of the conversation. That is not good for the health of the sport going forward. The last thing I'll say about the the Bama Tennessee game is that the way too early outlook for that game. I'm really excited about it. One, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that game day will come to Athens. Mm-hmm. It's got to happen. And I think that if this Tennessee team continues going on the way they're doing, they have a lot of really great talent. But I will remind everybody that Georgia loves a team that relies on few people with a lot of talent. They That's love true. it. They eat that shit right up. They do. That's a pretty good preview. And I will take us out. But before I do, I will say, if you would like me to sell you my sideline pass for this game that I will <laughs> get through the Redcoats, I'm going to need approximately 10 acres of prime real estate in either Oconee or Clark County. A deed to such. And I will I will burn my affiliation with the Redcoats. And actually, no, I take that back. <laughs> I'm going to need five acres with, uh, let's say, a four bedroom, three and a half bath house. Deal. If you can do that, then I can give you my sideline pass. And this has been Chapel Bell Curve. If you like what you heard here today, we would love if you gave us a rating on whether it be Android Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, wherever you got this, we would love a rating and review, even if you're just carving it into the immaculate walls of a Bucky's bathroom somewhere on I-20 or I-75. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Those bathrooms are too good. They don't deserve it. If you would like to yell at us for whatever reason, you can get in touch with us with Facebook at Chapel Bell Curve, on Instagram, at Chapel Bell Curve, and on Twitter, at Chapel Bell Curve. There's almost like there's a pattern there. You can also email us at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com. We would love it if we use, if you used any of those methods of communication to hit us up with a hashtag AskCBC question. We will be soliciting questions throughout the week. We would love to hear yours so that we can, we can publish our AskCBC episode. If you would like to support this podcast, if you love what you heard today, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve and pledge as little as $1 a month to get access to an amazing community of fans and many other benefits. 
We will catch you this. Well, we'll catch you this weekend. I'll be in the Classic City, wherever parts unknown for everybody else. And then we'll catch you next weekend in Jacksonville. But until then, go dogs. Go dogs.